You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're working our way through this section of the Gospel of Matthew. And it deals, this whole chapter is dealing with um, the childlikeness of the believer. And it points that out over and over again. Uh, You have to come into the kingdom as a little child. We saw that in verses 3 and 4 of Matthew. And also in verses 5 to 9, we saw that you can be protected like little children. And in verses 10 to 14, we saw that we have to be cared for like little children. We're basically children and, uh, in God's eyes. And now we come to a point where in verse 15, he begins to talk about um, dealing with sin within the church. And he talks about disciplining us as little children and how we uh, deal with that. Um, sometimes that word discipline can be used in a negative sense. A lot of people think of discipline, oh, that's bad, you know. Uh, that's not. It's a, it's, it's a good um, word. It, you can think of the word disciple. It, it, it basically means conforming you to a certain standard making sure you conform to a certain standard. And um, here in in verse 15 to 20 of Matthew 18, he's talking about conforming us to a standard of holiness when it comes to the body of Christ and maintaining that holiness within the confines of the church. So the word discipline is not a negative term. It's, It's actually a positive term. It's meant for our betterment. But over the years, throughout history, even back as early as the 1700s with Jonathan Edwards, I want to put up on the screen something he said concerning discipline within the church. He said this, If you tolerate visible wickedness in your members, you will greatly dishonor God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the religion which you profess, the church in general, and yourselves in particular, as those members of the church who practice wickedness bring dishonor upon the whole body, so do those who tolerate it with them, tolerate them in it. And he went on to say this. He said, if strict discipline is thereby strict moral laws, and strict moral laws were maintained in the church, it would be one of the most powerful means of conviction and conversion toward those who are without. And then he asked this question, how can you be true disciples of Christ if you live in the neglect of these plain, positive commands? So, Discipline in the church is not something that just somebody thought up. All right, This is, has been going on. It comes from the Word of God. And it really talks about the purity, maintaining the purity and the holiness of the church in general. And the whole, the whole chapter, as I said, deals with this uh, childlikeness of the believer. But the true, it's, it's true even in the sense of spirituality. When when your children misbehave, okay, you correct them, I trust. Well, as believers, when we misbehave, God corrects us, and a lot of times he uses the body of Christ to do that. And so we come to our text, and I just want to read it for us this morning uh, so that we can understand uh, what we're going to go through here this morning. Verses 15 to 20. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be as unto you a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about Anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Now last week, we looked at the first uh, three uh, essentials of dealing with sin within the church. The first one was the place. And we looked at verse 17, and it says very clearly, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then he mentions church again. And we said this is only the second and third time the church is mentioned in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's used in a non-direct 
sense. It's not used, it's a very general term that's being used here. It's not used in reference to the New Testament church because the New Testament church wasn't around yet. It wasn't born yet. Pentecost hadn't happened yet. So as a result of that, he says, let this be, this, this, Correction take place in the church. And what does he mean by that? He means the assembly. The word means called out ones. It's talking about believers. It's talking about where there's a gathering of believers. This could be in your family. This could be in your small group. This could be in your church. Wherever there's believers gathered together, that is essentially the church. So many times we associate the church with a building or with you know something like that. That's not the church. The church is made up of individuals, made up of those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And so it refers to the assembly. That's where this takes place. Secondly, what was the purpose? We looked at the purpose in verse 15, and it gives it very clear. It says, if you go to him and he hears you, what happens? You gain your brother, right? So the, the goal in, in telling, going and telling your brother about his sin or sister about her sin, it's always restoration. That's the goal of correction. Uh, You know, when you correct your children, you don't correct them so that they'll continue to do wrong things. You correct them in hopes that they will learn and they won't do wrong things again. And they'll be restored back to full fellowship within the family and not be in trouble and everything else. That's why you correct them. Well, that's the purpose of discipline within the local church or correction. It's restoration. It's not to run over to somebody and point out their sin with a pious attitude. That's not what this is about. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, if a brother is overtaken in a sin, or you be careful, if you fall into a sin there, you who are spiritual, it says, restore such a one. And in James chapter 5, it says the same thing. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, See, the goal is restoration. The goal is not to, just to kick people out of the church, but the purpose is restoration. Well, that's the place, the purpose. The third thing we looked at was the person. In verse 15, who does this? Well, it says, if your brother sins against who? Against you. You're the ones that are to be carrying this out. It's not just the pastor or the elders or whoever. It's, it's the people who have been sinned against. See, that's the kind of transparency that God desires within his body. When someone offends you, when someone does something wrong to you, when someone says something bad about you, you, know, you don't hold it inside and hold a grudge and carry that on for years and years and years. You go to that person and you simply say, you know what, you offended me. You sinned against me. And here's why. Here's why I think, you know, this is, this is what happened. This is why my feelings were hurt. Whatever you want to say. And you go to them in meekness and love. But the idea is that you go. You don't go and get somebody else right away. You go. Because you're the one that has the issue. There's no committee. It's not for church officials to do this. It's up to the individual members of the body of Christ. In Galatians 6, 1, we just, we just read that, and that's what it says. You who are spiritual, you go and you restore such a one. And then we looked at three ingredients to that person. They have to have a willingness, right? You have to be willing to go. And where does that come from? Well, that comes out of a zeal that you have for God and to keep the holiness of the church intact. So when you see something going wrong, you want to go and and you want to confront that with the goal of restoring that person. And then thirdly, not only a willingness and a zeal for God, but also a personal purity. Matthew 7, you can't go over to somebody while you've got a two-by-four hanging out of your eye, right? And go to them, oh, you know, you got a little speck in your eye. You know, no, you, that's, that's why we're all called to that, that standard of holiness. It's not just those who are in ministry or those who are working here or there. It's, it's everybody who's part of the body of Christ. God calls us to a personal level of holiness that's honoring to him. That's what we looked at last week. Well, today, I want to look at two other things. And the third thing is the reason or the provocation for this. Why does this have to happen? What brings this up? 
What provokes this kind of a, of, a, of a confrontation within the church? I thought we were just supposed to all be nice and, and be sweet and hold hands and sing kumbaya and, and you know, just never get offended and everything. Well, that's not reality. It's not reality in your own family, and it's definitely not reality in the family of God. Sometimes certain things happen. People sin, and they sin against people, and they sin against God, and that sin has to be confronted. How do you know when you're to approach someone? Well, it tells us clearly right here in verse 15. If your brother, what's it say? Sins against you. If your brother sins against you. Now, remember, this is in light of us caring for the body and and he just got done giving them all this information about the lost sheep and all this stuff. So he he has an idea that, you know, when someone strays away, we're we're to go after them, we're to care for them. That's what a good shepherd would do. But having said all that, what happens when somebody personally sins against you? That word there, sin, that's the provocation when someone sins against you. The, the general word for sin in the original language. And it simply means to miss the mark. It means that God sets a standard and we missed it. We violate his law. And there's a whole theological study based around the study of sin. Well, what do you do if your brother or sister sins against you? See, that's the issue. That was the issue back then. Remember, here are the disciples. They just got done dealing with Christ and and him telling them he's not going to be with them very much longer, and then they start arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. So they're really sinning against one another. They're provoking one another in pride. And then he brings this up because it was relevant. And remember why he's doing this the whole time he has a little child sitting on his lap. Our Lord does. Well, what's the answer? What sins need to be corrected? It's kind of a general thing there. If your brother sins against you, what does that mean? That could mean a wide variety of things. See, unfortunately today, when we look at sin, a lot of times what we do is we we take certain sins and we say, well, they're bad. And then these are, you know, they're, they're not as bad. And, well, this, is, this can just kind of go by the wayside. It's not a big deal. Well, that's not the way God looks at sin. There aren't good sins and bad sins, beloved. They're all sin. That's why this term is general. In other words, if any member of the Christian fellowship sins in violating God's standard in any way, this process of going and telling and this whole process gets started. That's what provokes it. When someone sins. I mean, you look at the church today, this should be going on all the time. But it's not. And it should be immediate. It says there, if your brother sins against you. Because the issue is the holiness of the church. You can't have, you know, either the church is holy or it's not. Right? Right? I mean, you can't have a church that's, you know, has maybe a hundred members and five of them are sinful, living sinful lives. Well, that, that affects the whole holiness of the whole church. Now, it's interesting because in this verse, some, depending on what translation you're reading, if you're reading the New American Standard in verse 15, you won't find against you in the text. It says, if your brother sins, Go and tell him his fault. We don't know whether it's supposed to be in there or not, but we're just going to leave it in there because Luke leaves it in there. Most translations have it in there. It's just one of those things, the manuscript, some of them have it, some of it don't. But let's just leave it in there for the sake of the argument. And I think it's, it's, it should be in there because right down a little further, he, he talks about sinning against your brother, Peter, begins to, begins to ask him about, you know, how many times do I have to forgive when he sins against me? So it is, he's talking about sinning against a person, an individual. And in verse 21, that's what Peter does. He basically says, you know, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Seven times so? So it's, it's kind of an important issue. Some, tr- some 
uh, translations have it in there. Some don't, but I believe it should be in there. Um, now, in over in Luke chapter 17 is the other text that this, this uh, section is in, and it's in there. So we're just going to leave it in there. It says, take heed for yourselves if your brother trespass against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's what it says in Luke 17, which is a parallel passage, verse 3. Because if it, if it means that, what it means is that the only person responsible to go and seek this person out is the person, what, whom against he sinned, Right? And that's exactly correct. When someone sins against you, it's not the elder's job or the pastor's job to go deal with it. It's your job. When someone offends you, you go to them directly and you do it immediately. You don't wait. You do it immediately. And if they don't sin against you, you're not responsible for it. But let me explain this to you. There's two ways people can sin against you. Directly, right? I could do something to offend you directly. I could take something from you that's not mine, it's yours. could commit a, a crime against somebody, whatever. I mean, that's a, a direct sin against an individual. Those are sins that are directly offensive to someone. And the text says when something like that happens, when a person sins against you, you go and you tell him. And the goal is why? To gain your brother. So you don't go tell him. You don't, you don't confront him in a way that says, you know, I can't believe you've done this to me. I can't be-. You don't go there with that kind of an attitude. That's not what the text is saying. You don't go and tell him off and say, you know, I'm going to make your life miserable. Because look at what you've done to me. That's not it. See, if we could get this, we would resolve a lot of issues within the local churches. When you get sinned against, when you get deceived or lied or slandered, whatever it might be, and this is within the family of God, remember, this is what we're talking about, the church, the body of Christ. When a Christian does this to you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go and tell him the sin and get him to confess and to repent so that you could gain back that fellowship with your brother or gain back that fellowship with your sister. I mean, the idea is is you're showing Christ's likeness when you do that. See, in our mind, when someone offends us, that's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to do that. We want to kind of hold a grudge. We definitely don't want to go talk to the person. They've offended us. See, we get it the other way around. We think that we should just be, sit here, be offended until they come to us. I didn't do anything wrong. They're the one that sinned against me. Why should I have to go? Because that's what it says. It's very clear. And what are you doing when you do that? What do you do to someone who's sinned against you? And you know it. And rather than just sit there and bear a grudge and, well, until they repent, I'm not going to. What do you do when you actually go to them? And you explain it. Not in a pious way. It says, go to him, rebuke him, in Luke. And if he repents, forgive him. That's it. It's over. The issue's over. No drama. No bitterness. See, we don't do that. We let bitterness cultivate in our hearts to the point where we even refuse to talk to people at times. Every time the person walks in the room, you run to the other side of the room. I mean, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4. I mean, this is what God's 
word says. This is how he says we should operate as the body of Christ. I'm not saying we're doing it. (laughs) We need to be doing it more and more and more. But listen to this verse in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another. Be kind. Don't be resentful. Be kind. Tender-hearted. Forgive one another. And then look at that last phrase. As God in Christ, what? Forgave you. Who do you think you are to hold a grudge against anybody? Who do you think you are? When God has forgiven you. So the Bible says you go and you confront to seek gaining your brother or your sister back when they sin against you directly. That's what we're to do. Well, you can also sin against people indirectly. Not all sins are against me directly. People could sin against me indirectly. Do you know that any sin in the assembly of God's people is against any of God's people? Because ultimately, it stains us all. When anyone sins within the body of Christ, you've really lost your fellowship, and it touches all of us. Because we're a body. We're all together in this. When anyone is living in a disobedient life, they bring reproach on Christ And we are Christ's representative here on earth, beloved. And we bear his reproach so that indirectly all of us is, in a way, that sin is against us. It may not be directly against you. But if I know about it, it's against me. Why? Because I want the church of God to be holy. I want the church of God to be pure. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we're protecting. I mean, to look at it another way would would be if, for example, we're only then to react to sins directly against us. Think about this. If it's only when you sin against me directly that I can start this process of correction. Well, what happens when somebody in the church lies to somebody outside the church? Or does something with somebody outside the church, and they're not part of the church, they're not even a believer. Say they're, they're, they're lying to their boss at work who's not a Christian. Well, that's not a sin against me, so I guess I can't confront it. <laughs> if you want to believe that, that it's only against you directly. No, there's sins against us indirectly. And that's what's so important. When we leave this fellowship on Sunday, please understand that you're representing not only this body, but more importantly, Christ to a lost and dying world. That's why, I mean, my heart just grieves over this whole Harold Camping family radio thing. How horrible. You think of the people that gave up savings and forsook their jobs all because they're following one guy and one man's teaching that is false and erroneous and by the way, he's not a false prophet. Some people, oh, he's a false prophet. They should he's not a false prophet. I, I've never heard Harold Camping say that he has the book of Harold and he's coming up with the, the word of God. Uh, you know, God is channeling the word of God through him and now he has his own, his own uh, text of scripture. He's a false teacher is what he is. He's not a false prophet. And it, it's, it's important to distinguish that because he's obviously a lot mixed up. And he's got a lot of people mixed up. And you know what? That kind of thing affects us as the church. It just does. I mean, I can't count the times this past week at the coffee shop. Oh, hey, hey, pastor, you got your bags packed, you know, smirking and everything, you know. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is. Because we're part of the body. So we do have a responsibility when someone lies to someone outside the church, maybe an unsaved 
unsaved person, something like that. We have a responsibility to confront that sin and deal with that sin because it reflects on all of us. The point is, is that any sin is a sin that stains the fellowship, whether it's indirect or whether it's direct. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and also in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul summed it up this way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. <laughs> a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now remember, leaven is not an illustration of sin, it's an illustration of influence. And it's saying that sin can have the influence of leaven. That's why they, they weren't to bring their leaven from Egypt. They're to leave everything behind. They weren't to take that little section of, they would save a piece of the dough and they'd save it and, and they'd start the, the fresh batch with it. They said, no, don't do that. That's, that's why they had to eat unleavened bread for a period of time. So leaven is influence. But it's used as an illustration that sin has such an influencing factor that just a little bit of sin can ruin the whole batch. And so that's why Jesus is so focused on confronting it. Not just closing your eyes and pretending like it doesn't exist. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It could be adultery, it could be fornication, it could be homosexuality, it could be dishonesty, whatever. It needs to be confronted. Because it's going to touch all of us. So if you know about it, that should be the provocation to start this process in Matthew 18. And you say, well, what is the process? How is this done? Well, good point. That's the next step. What is the process? It tells us in verse 15 of Matthew 18. What do you do when this happens? When somebody sins, what do you do? Step one. Go and tell. That's what it says in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, the next word, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him. You know the place. It's supposed to happen in the church. You know the person. It's you. You know why? Because the brother or sister has sinned against you. And now what's the process? Well, first of all, you have to go and tell him. That word go is a present imperative. And what that means in the original language is you get gone now. Don't wait. Don't even wait a second. When you hear about that sin or you're confronted with that sin, you go and you tell them right away. Don't hold off. You know, don't use, well, you know, i got to pray about it. No, you don't. You need to do what the Scripture tells us to do. Sometimes I think we use the little prayer gimmick to get out of what God wants us to do. I've heard people tell me sometimes, well... You know, I, I think I need to pray about this or that or whatever. And it's very clear what God tells them to do in Scripture. And yet, they're unwilling to do it, so they use the excuse of, well, I think I need to pray about it a little longer. Sometimes you don't need to pray about things when it's so clear in Scripture that God tells you to do it. And the first thing he says there is you've got to be willing to go. Pursue it is the idea. And don't give it up until it's done, until it's finished. Don't be distracted by things. Not only are we to go, but we're to tell them. That word is an aorist imperative. And what that means, it basically means, you know what, you need to do this. This isn't an option. And it means you keep on doing it until it gets resolved. You hang in there. You keep on confronting the person. So many times, that's not what we do. First of all, we don't even go to the person when they offend us. That's, that, we have to start there. We have to go and tell the person that they offended us or they sinned against us or we see something in their life, whatever it is, and we need to confront them about it for the goal of restoration. We need to expose it. And there's no getting around that. That's a, it's, it's, it's hard to do. It, it takes time. It takes effort. It's a difficult task, but it's also a delicate task. It's difficult with the people you know. 
because they know you, right? So as soon as you go and you say, you know, I see this in your life, what are they going to do? They're going to point right back at you. Well, who do you think you are? I mean, that's what you get. That's irrelevant. I mean, that goes back to the, the, the goal of personal purity. None of us are perfect by any extreme. But that's the goal. So, so then when something like this comes up, that we're not dealing with the same issue as a hypocrite going and pointing out to somebody else. But it's also a difficult people with it's difficult sometimes with people you don't know. Because what's their 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 excuses? Well, who are you? You know, who do you think you? You don't even know me. You know, that's their attitude. And yet, when the sin is obvious enough that it offends you, and you go to them like that, that's kind of the reaction you get sometimes. We can be fearful of the people we know, but we tend to be indifferent about the people we don't know. Well, eh, whatever. Just kind of shove them aside. And you have to do it with the right attitude. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is a difficult thing to carry out, but it's also, it has to be done delicately. And it has to be done within the spirit of Christ. We keep on coming back here, but it's, it's important to understand this, this verse. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? It says, in the spirit of gentleness or meekness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. First thing is, is gentleness or meekness. You go to that person in humility. You know, you, you don't walk over to them with your chest puffed out and, you know, hey, you sinner, you know, you did this and you need to repent. That's not the way this is done. You don't go over there with a self-righteous attitude. You don't go over for spite or vengeance. You go out of loving, humble care. Why? Because you care for them as an individual. You care for them as a member of the body of Christ. You care for them as your brother or sister in Christ. You go in gentleness. You go in humility. Because you could, you could be that person. That's the idea. Who do you think you are that you couldn't fall into the same sin maybe they're involved in? So you go in gentleness, but also notice that you go alone. It says you go. You go and you do it face to face. And all this is done to gain your lost brother or your lost sister. I'm not talking lost in the way of salvation. I'm saying your fellowship with them is broken because they offended you. They sinned against you. But you go alone. I mean, when's the last time you, someone sinned against you and you went directly immediately to that person and told them their sin right to their face? That should be a common thing in the church. It's not. Usually we go and you tell everybody else what they did. I mean, that's what we do, right? Then eventually, maybe, it works around to them and then they get offended because we're talking about them and what they did to us. And then, you know, then you have this big brouhaha in the church for no reason whatsoever. We need to go and talk to them face to face. That's what the Bible says. And you know, it's a marvelous thing when, when you've done that because, see, they've done something wrong to you. And when you go with a humble, meek, loving attitude and you tell them their fault, you tell them what they did, it's going to take a pretty hard person if you do it in the right attitude and you do it with the goal of res- restoring your fellowship because you love that person, you care for that person, you miss the fellowship that you once had. It's going to be a pretty hard person that they just say, oh, I'm not interested. I'm not going to do that. Not if they're a genuine Christian. <coughs> More than likely, they're gonna, their heart's going to soften. 
and you're going to gain your brother or your sister back. Don't tell everybody, just tell them. I mean, what a glorious thing if that's how the church operated on a, on a weekly, daily basis. If we all practice this the way Scripture shows us. Well, what if he refuses to hear you? What if he just puts you off? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, because you're, you're probably wondering, well, is there an example in the Bible of this ever happening? Actually, there is in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, look at verse... Eleven. See, Peter had sinned in this in this situation, and he basically removed himself from the assembly, the local church there, and he was beginning to fall into a group of people who were very legalistic, you might say, when he was in Antioch. And Paul says Peter was to come, was come to Antioch. And I withstood him, what? To the face, because he was to be blamed. What was Paul doing here? Paul was confronting Peter over a sin. That's step one. It's an illustration. What did, what did, how did Peter respond? Well, if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter, two, verse 5, or chapter 3, verse 15, 2 Peter 3, 15, Peter writes this about Paul. Even as our beloved brother Paul. <laughs> so there must have been some form of resolution there, restoration in their relationship, because at one point he's withstanding him to his withstanding him to his face. He confronts the sin. And then in Second Peter three fifteen, he calls Paul his beloved brother. So because Paul was willing enough to confront him with his sin, he cared enough about it, he loved him enough. See, that, that's when the hearts really begin to knit together within the body of Christ. But when you just let it go, and you store it back in the, the treasure chest of grudges in your life, and you hold this thing against that person, well then, this can never happen. So you confront a person one-on-one, and your hearts will be knit together closer. If there's repentance and there's restoration, that's the goal. Well, what happens if they don't listen? Step two. Verse 16, back in Matthew 18. He says, if they don't listen to you when you go and you confront them. Verse 16, but if, you do not, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5. The Jews were very familiar with that. Whenever they had a charge or something had to be confirmed, it always had to be confirmed with two or three witnesses present. Why? Because one person could lie about it. And that's what basically the Lord is is pointing out here. If you go to that person and and they don't repent and they, they just put you off and say, I don't care what you think, and it's very obvious that they're in sin, the Scripture says, well, you go back, but you take two or three other people with you. And they're not there to, because they sinned against them, they're just there to, be testi- te- to testify that you actually did what you said you did when you went alone. So you go back the second time and you do the same thing. You go back and you confront the sin. But this time, you have two or three people with you. And the reason is, is so that this time when that person says, well, you know what, I don't really care. Or when you go back and... You, you tell, get ready to tell the church, which is the next step. If you just did that by yourself, you could go to a brother and, and maybe you have a grudge against them. Maybe they sinned against you and maybe they ask for your forgiveness, but you go back and you tell the whole body, oh, they didn't, they didn't ask for my forgiveness. Their heart's even harder. When it may not be true. So if they put you off the first time, you take two or three with you back a second time. 
and you confront them again. And the idea here is to show him or her his sin so that he really understands that he really understands what, what you're doing, that you, you want his repentance, you want restoration. And they're there simply to witness the confrontation or the restoration, whatever may happen. I mean, one person can be biased. Two or three people, you know, if they all hear and say, hear and and see the same thing going on, and the person's hard-hearted, and they kick you out of their house, and they don't want to have any, well, then it's kind of obvious. And then it's not just your word, you have two or three people with you. So it's not just one individual who does this. God doesn't want wrong reports about people floating around the church. He wants people that are being honest, that are being truthful. This is a way that we can establish that. In 2 Corinthians, there's an illustration of this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians <laughs> chapter 13, the love chapter, and I'm looking at it and like this is not this is not what I want. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter 13. Look at what he says in verse 1. This is the third time Paul writes, and he says, I'm coming to you. And then he puts this little phrase in there. You see this a lot. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while I'm even absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. And he goes on, and he tells them to examine themselves. But the same principle is there. You take two or three people with you, now, someone was obviously sinning in that, in that fellowship. Something was going wrong. He had to confront it. So there's an illustration where Paul responds to the Corinthians and their second approach about their sin. And he says, you know what? You don't want me to come back a third time. And so there's an illustration of that right there. Well, what if you go and you try to establish that restoration with them and they kick you out. And you take two or three other people with you because you want to win your brother back. You want that restored fellowship. You're concerned about the holiness and purity of the church. And you go to them with two or three people and they kick all of you out. Say, get lost. I don't want to talk to you. You need to stop. You say, oh, well, we, well, we tried. No. What's it say in verse 17? It says, if he refuses to listen to them and everybody, everybody it says, then you need to tell it to the church. You tell it to the group of believers that you're part of. Step three, you tell the whole assembly. You can do that in a lot of different ways. You can do that in a... Remember, this this assembly is a group of believers. This group of believers may be within your family. So say you have a family of, of 10 individuals and one they're all Christians and one of them decides to go, you know, sleep with his neighbor's wife across the street or something. And so you as a family come together and you confront that individual. You won't hear one, you take two or three, you won't hear that, then you, you tell everybody about the sin. Tell everybody what's going on. You, you tell them basically, look, this person is in sin, And you need to reach out to them. 
The goal is to bring them back. The goal is restoration. That's the intention. And when you tell the church, when you reach this level, obviously, within the local church, speaking of nowadays, obviously the leadership is going to have some wind of this. And if they're still unrepentant, after two or three go, and you're trying to reach out, you're trying to win them back, and this is done through prayer and and humility and love, it's not done in a revengeful way, then you disseminate that information to the whole body, the body of Christ, that assembly that you're part of, that sin is affecting. It could be through small groups, it could be through a Bible study, it could be through whatever, but you need to deal with it in that fashion. Well, what do you tell the church? Do you get up and tell them all the details of what's gone on? No. You basically tell the church, you go get them. This person is out there. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing. We've tried. Somebody went out. One, two, two, three went out. They, now the whole church has to go reach out to that person. Two or three went, now we all go. I mean, this is something that a lot of churches don't practice. And I can't even tell you that we have a good handle on it here because we don't. But we should. Can you imagine, wouldn't that be wonderful if a sinning brother or sister is caught in a trespass of sin and they they don't want to come back here because why? Why? When you're in sin, where's the last place? You don't want to come to church. I mean, you know, you just don't. Especially when that sin's enjoyable and you don't want to hear a lecture from somebody about why you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You know, you're not going to come to church. So you're going to stay away from the church. But what if the church starts tracking you down? What if the members of the body start coming after you? Saying, hey, we miss you. Where you been? What's going on? Heard some things, but, you know, we we want restoration here. We want you to come back. We miss your talents. We miss your gifts operating in our body. They're calling them back from sin, back into the fellowship. That's what we're to do. And it's not one person. There's an example where one person did this in the Bible. Diotrephes, in John's third epistle. John was going to go to the the church and it says that Diotrephes basically didn't want to have anything of it because he was putting people out of the church himself. He was like a one-man committee, disciplinary committee. And it just created havoc. See, this isn't something that can be handled by one or two people. When it gets to this extreme, you involve everybody. Why? Because of your love and your concern for that person. It's not up to one person whether to decide, okay, this person repented or not. I mean, it should be evident to everybody. There's a case of this in the New Testament too. Look at uh, first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse five. Dealing with forgive the sinner, it says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. It's the idea of someone in sin. For such a one this punishment by the majority, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, look at what he says, you reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might attest you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, 
if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his delights. See, that's what Satan wants. Satan wants us to turn on each other. And so when this process is underway, the last thing he wants is when that person just repents right away. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want two or three to reach out to that person and that person repents then. No, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want it even when the whole church is told. And, and they're confronting this person in a loving way. Because it touches the whole body. That's why he says if, it's, if, it's, if he sinned, it's not just against me, it's against everybody. So it's apparent to everybody that this person is, is in sin, but Paul is saying you need to still reach out to him. That's what church is about. Now you might say, you know, it's step two, step three. <coughs> it still doesn't hear the whole church. What are we supposed to do? The whole church goes out, reaches out to this person in love, humility, trying to confront them over their sin. It's pretty clear what the Bible says in Matthew 18. It says if they don't respond to that, it says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to even the church, you got everybody now leaving this place and focusing their attention on one individual, one brother or sister in Christ who's fallen into sin in some form or fashion. And they've, they've, they've pushed themselves away. And you sent the whole body after them. I mean, they're getting notes from people. They're getting letters from people. They're getting phone calls from people. What's a, don't you think that's kind of harassing? In a way, that's exactly what it is. It's very easy to turn the other way and just go, oh, well, you know, whatever. They never did much around here anyway. Let them go. But that's not what Scripture says. This is very convicting. It says you send the whole church after them. If they don't listen to the whole church, then here's what we're to do. Step four. Basically, you treat them as an unbeliever. You treat them as a tax collector, it says. Let him be unto you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Wow. So here you have a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin. One individual has reached out to him, the person that they sinned against, they wouldn't hear it. So that individual, because of his love for his brother or sister, reaches out to two or three other people and he takes them with him as a, be a testimony of this process. And he says the same thing. He says, look, I love you. Everything, I, I want you to repent of your sin. You know, here's what happened. You sinned against me and you need to repent. And they won't hear that. No. Then you, you tell the church, you tell the assembly about it. And you say, you know, we need to go after this person. See, it goes right back to the parable of the lost sheep, doesn't it? I mean, that's what people would do if they really cared about you. They would come after you. It's very convicting. But it says when they don't even listen to the whole church, it says you treat them as a heathen man or a tax collector. I mean, tax collectors were not looked on very highly back then. And remember, we're reading from Matthew, he was one. <laughs> so he knows what he's talking about. So you're talking about treating somebody as if they weren't even part of the fellowship because of their sin, because you need to protect the holiness of the church. Well, what does that mean? You treat them as a tax collector. You treat them as a heathen, some scriptures say. Well, first of all, it means to put them out. What do you mean by that? Just what it says. You put them out of the local church. You tell them you're, they're not welcome here. 
until they repent. We've gone through the process. It's come to this head. You're still not seeing it. You're still unwilling to repent of the sin that's obviously in your life. And unfortunately, you're no longer welcome here. And nobody from this church will be fellowshipping with you. That sounds radical. That's exactly what it means. You don't associate with them. So you don't let them have the benefits of the body when they're not acting like they're part of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 makes it very clear. In the Corinthian church, there was a man who was in a sexual relationship with his father's wife, his stepmother, in the church. Form of incest. And instead of being, you would think you'd be embarrassed or brokenhearted, they were proud of it. Paul says, in chapter 5 there, you're puffed up and you haven't mourned. (laughs) Instead of being sad over this situation, you're glad. There's a problem here. This is kind of like a notch in your own belt, having an affair with your own stepmother. And then he says in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, next time you come together in the assembly, he says this, Deliver such a one unto Satan. Wow. What's that mean? It means put him out. And that's why a lot of times in churches you'll see when it comes time for their communion time they may have to say some pretty hard things at the communion time about an individual within the body who's no longer there because he was put out. And they instruct the congregation you're not to have any contact with this person because they haven't repented. And some people say, well, what if that person is part of my family? What if that person is my brother-in-law or sister-in-law and we have Thanksgiving and the person's coming over? You're saying, I can't go to the dinner? No. You can, you can spend time with them. You just have to be reminding them that they need to repent the whole time. That's the goal. That's the point. That's how serious God takes sin in the local church. And unfortunately, we don't take it that serious today. In verse 6, he says, Because a little leaven leavens leavens the whole lump. Purge it out, therefore, the old leaven. Get it out. 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, it says, I took Hymenaeus and Alexander and turned them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I mean, that's an incredible consequence for sin. See, that's why it's a process. And the process, the goal of the process is restoration. That's why through the process you're ratcheting it up a little bit. It's like your own children. Johnny, take the trash out. Five minutes later, Johnny still isn't taking the trash out. Johnny gets in trouble. Maybe he gets a spanking. Maybe he gets a Nintendo taken away, whatever. The next day, Johnny, take the trash out. Ten minutes later, he still isn't taking the trash out. What, you're realizing, well, my discipline's not working with Johnny. So I've got to ratchet up a little bit. Maybe he gets spanked a little harder. Maybe he gets something else taken away. See, that's the goal. The goal is to discipline these people back into the fellowship. But it's sad to say that a lot of this doesn't even go on. Sometimes you just have to be willing to tell people, you know what, either you're going to serve the world and the devil, or you're going to serve God. But you're not going to have both. We're not going to allow you to be part of this fellowship and reap the benefits of this fellowship, and live in sin. Open sin. It's not going to happen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition in which, we, in which he received us. The word withdrawal there means to avoid. Avoid them. doesn't mean you're not praying for them. But you know what? You don't let them in your fellowship. You don't let them in your assembly. You don't let them partake of communion. And we're talking now about people who know the Lord. If they truly know the Lord, they're going to miss it. 
We're not talking about outside people. We're not talking about non-Christians. They're always welcome here. Because we want them to be exposed to the truth. We want them to repent and come to Christ. We're talking about sinning members of the family of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, If any man obey not the word of this epistle, note that, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. See, that, think about it. You're, you're part of a church, and you fall into a sin, and for whatever reason, instead of repenting, your heart grows harder and harder and harder. I mean, you're, if you're a true believer, you're going to be ashamed of that. I mean, God's not going to let that believer go just because of that one sin. But God may have to work in his life and drag him down to literally nothing before he'll repent. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company not to have company with fornicators. And listen what he says. I'm not, not the fornicators of the world. Those are the people that need the message of Christ. He's not, he's not saying don't meet with those people. Don't fellowship with those people. Don't reach out to those people. They need you. In verse 11 he says, But I'm writing so that you not keep company if any, if any uh, man that is called a brother be a fornicator, covetous, idolater, drunkard, extortioner. And then he says this, with such a one, don't even eat. Don't even have a meal with them. That's the first phase of, of treating them as a tax collector. You put them physically out of the church. And then secondly, this may surprise you, you call them back. <laughs> you call them back. You're always extending the hand because the goal is restoration. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 says, Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Because he is your brother or sister in Christ, he's just fallen into a sin. And he won't repent of his sin, and his heart has grown so hard that he's withstood the whole church. So we're not going to allow him to come here and fellowship with us, but you know what? We're not going to stop reaching out to them in 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 a way that calls them to repentance. I mean, this is something that really delineates the New Testament church and marks it out, and even today. I mean, if you, if you want to know whether a church is, is legitimate in its look at Scripture and what it believes, stop and see if, if they're just allowing sin to just run rampant in their congregation. Because if they are, they're not obeying God's Word. And remember, it says, if someone sins against you. This isn't a, you know, gee, you know, that person's acting a little weird. I think maybe they're up to something wrong. Maybe we need to investigate. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone who's obviously committed a sin. This isn't the church police. That's not what we're called to. You're accountable, first of all, to God for the purity in your own life and in your own family. You're not accountable to me. You're accountable to God. And God sees everything. But when it becomes made known and sin rises up and we see it, all of us are to confront it. And we're to confront it in this fashion, with love, with humility, with meekness. And with the goal of restoring that brother or sister into the fellowship. And if we, would just, if we would just practice what God's word has here for us, I think that it would, it would really revolutionize any personal issues with anybody. Because that's what we're called to do. You might be sitting here this morning saying, who, who am I to do this? Well, next week we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the power, the authority that you have in Christ. And it says there in verses uh, 18 and, and, uh, to 20, we're going to look at those, those verses next week. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, as we come to this part of Scripture, uh, just to be honest, this is not an easy thing to teach. 
and it's not easy on, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but one reason is, is when I look at my own heart and I look at even my own ministry here at Grace Bible Church, I don't know if, if I've really worked this out the way that you have called us to. And so, Father, it's a personal thing, but it's also a hard thing for people to hear. And yet, you love the church so much, and you're concerned so much about its purity and its holiness, that you call us, when sin makes its presence known, it needs to be confronted, and it needs to be confronted immediately. It doesn't need to be talked about for a week, or two days, or three days, or three hours. It needs to be confronted immediately. And the process begins. And we pray when that process begins, Lord, that you would soften the heart of those who were involved. And Father, we think of even people who've left our fellowship. May not have been over a direct sin issue. But Lord, I pray that we would even continue to reach out to them, to call them back. Not because of who they are, not because of who we are, but because we miss our fellowship. We miss you using their gifts in our body among us. And Father, we thank you that you love us enough to discipline us as you see fit. And Lord, we pray that we would love each other to make sure that we care for one another in such a way that is honoring to you. We thank you and we praise you this morning. If anyone here has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to you, that you would show them that, Lord, that you're, you're first of all concerned with the holiness in their own life, in their own heart, and all of our sin, all of us have sinned and fall short of your glory, and we just pray that we would cry out to you and uh, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, that's a prayer that you will hear and you will transform that individual's heart when it comes from a repentant, pure heart, desire to know you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.